Between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. After that, I'm ready to go home. In one of my first jobs, I worked with a man named Mike Self. There's a lot of uniquenesses to working with a guy named Mike Self, including there are songs you can sing like, Dancing with Mike Self, that just make work a whole lot more fun. He ran the junior high ministry, and I was called to lead the high school ministry, and you would expect that two men working in a church together, especially two fun people, would get along really well. But I got to admit to you that Mike frustrated me to no end. And I could tell in the middle of our relationship that I irritated him as well. I hated how he approached things. It made me crazy. It, it, I struggled with how he handled people. It drove me nuts. And one day it occurred to me, I don't like Mike very much. And I don't think he likes me either. And the more I leaned into that, it occurred to me, I don't think we like each other because we're not friends. So I started thinking about that and considering that and praying through it. And one day I walked into our office. I gave him a long prepared speech and suggested that we consider spending six months eating lunch together every Friday so that we could get to know each other. And over that time, I learned about his family. I learned about his interest in swimming. By the way, he's still a phenomenal swimmer. I learned about his love for Texas, and he learned about me, and he learned about Denver Broncos football, and he learned about barbecue, and in fact, Mike and I never stopped eating lunch on Fridays until I moved four years later. To this day, Mike is one of my closest friends. He was in our wedding, did part of it, and I am exceedingly thankful for Mike. I learned so many things from him, and in fact, I still do. But one of the most important lessons I learned from Mike, that I learned through my relationship with Mike, I'm going to call relational hygiene. It's a title I stole from a sermon series our pastor in Memphis gave. We're going to lean more into this in the next couple of weeks. But here's the idea. Just as you would wash your hands and brush your teeth regularly in order to maintain health, there's some regular habits between Christians that need to occur regularly in order to maintain relationships and to keep them healthy. Many of these are described in the New Testament as the one another's. I'll read a handful of them to you. The book of John, chapter 13 and 15, it says, Love one another. Romans 12, outdo one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians 13, comfort and agree with one another. Galatians 5, serve one another. And see, those are people's favorites, because I can serve you without actually knowing you. I can do a lot of things for you without being involved in your life. But friends, here's the whole back half of the one another's. Let's lean into these. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Be honest with one another. Encourage one another confess to one another, pray for one another. There's a whole list of one another's in the New Testament that require us to be walking together for them to be expressed and frankly, for us to be sinning around each other. Friends, I regularly remind us that we were not called to walk this life alone. 
But when we were called, when we were saved by Jesus Christ, we were brought into a community, and we call that community the church. And I'm quite true, quite positive that you found this to be true, that the closer you walk with a group of people, the more you will be exposed to their sins. You see, we will see each other's shortcomings. We will see each other's failings. We will see each other's tempers, our lack of patience, and our selfishness. And if you've been in the church for any length of time, dare I say over a week, you've seen it, haven't you? (laughs) Amen that. Thanks. That's what we're getting amen for. But I would want to submit to you that these are the exact kind of relationships that Jesus calls us into. The ones where we don't hide, the ones where we don't pretend that we have it all together. One of my favorite quotes about the church comes from Eugene Peterson, who translated the message. And this is what Eugene Peterson writes about the deficiencies, about the shortcomings, about the sinfulness you find in relationships in the church. This is what he writes. I want you to look at what we have, what the church is right now, and ask Do you think maybe this is exactly what God intended when he created the church? Maybe the church, as we have it, provides the very conditions and proper company congenial for growing up in Christ, for becoming mature, for arriving at the measure of the stature of Christ. Maybe God knows what he's doing giving us the church, this church. What Peterson points out to us is the reality that the church, being utterly full of broken, imperfect people who sin, and make no mistake about it, there's no one in this room sitting or standing that's not a broken, imperfect person that has their stuff together. Not one of us. What Peterson points out to us is that the church was not created to bring us happiness or contentment but rather sanctification, that it would grow us up as believers, that as we walk around each other, live amongst each other, sin against one another, reconcile those relationships, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, that in fact Jesus Christ would be exalted through that, rather than pretending it doesn't happen and mosey on on our way. Part of the mission of God in the church is to grow us up. It is to mature us. Do you know right now, statistically, one of the major reasons why people leave the church is unresolved conflict. Something happens between two people. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe it's an accident. But they never address it. And they both decide exactly what they think happened. I see this from time to time in my office. People make vast assumptions about people's intentions, about their desires, about what they wanted to do, what they tried to do. The truth doesn't matter. It's people's perception. Friendships are broken. And this can happen easily between friends. It happens in families. And it absolutely happens in marriages. And friends, we need more for and from each other than this. So I'm going to spend our time together this morning and our time next week in a short series called Relational Hygiene, working to equip us with the skills and principles to handle the reality that we will let each other down, we will sin against one another, and we will have conflict. Because if you put in a group of 
in a group this size, enough people, and by enough I mean two, sin will abound. So let's lean into that. Turn with me to Matthew 18. We touched briefly on it in July, and I promised you we'd come back, and here we are. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. By the way, you should know, we're taking 15 today. We'll deal with 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 next week. Matthew 18, let me read it for us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. Let's look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, if, and that's not a very big if at all, is it? If, because it happens, doesn't it? Because we're human, it happens. We sin against each other. I have probably sinned against most of you. So if you don't think it's, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about me. If you got something with me, we'll talk about it later. I'm encouraging that. If your brother sins against you, again, this is not because you're awful, it's because you're human, we sin against one another. But let's notice here that the Bible intentionally uses a theological word here with a meaning, and the word is sin. And that's really important. Because it's possible that I might deeply offend you and yet not sin against you. On one of my first Sundays here, Kellen Howard showed up in a Seattle Seahawks jersey. I was deeply offended by it. And yet my brother did not sin against me. I did not need to confront him for this, yet I was offended. And it's possible that I can even hurt you and not sin against you. Austin Showers told a story this past week of a friend of his telling him that his socks didn't match his suit. Well, that might hurt Austin, but that's not sinning against Austin. There's a whole swath of areas in the Christian life in which somebody could say something to you. It might hurt you, but it isn't sin. It's not breaking God's law. And so we need to talk about those things for just a second. Because there's a place here where we can consider things sins that aren't sin, where we might make preferences a major issue, where Scripture would say they aren't. So let's put our first principle before you, and this is what it is. Overlook minor offenses. This is part of bearing with one another. That you're going to do some things that aren't my preferences, and I'm going to do some things that aren't your preferences. And do we need to call each other out for that? Probably not. World War 3, 4, and 5 will happen if we all get on that bandwagon. 
We need to overlook minor offenses. You can pull this actually pretty directly from Proverbs 19.11, which says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. What Solomon is writing here is that good sense, practical wisdom, suggests that you be slow to anger. That you consider both sides of it. That before you get wrapped up, before you start rolling down the snowball path of deceiving everyone else's intentions, that you be very slow to get angry about something. It takes it a step further by saying it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Now James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So we should be slow in our anger, but it is to our glory to overlook an offense. To look at something and say, this is not a cause that I need to step into. This is not something that needs to be brought to your doorstep. This is, not, this is something I need to put away. It is to your glory to put something away. So then you get to ask, what is a minor offense? And, and while you could preach on that for quite a while, let me put it to you simply. Did it break God's law? See, if you steal my bike, is that a minor offense? No, you stole my bike. You've committed theft that breaks God's law. But if you step on my foot, is that a minor offense? Absolutely it is. We should move on. This is the first principle we need to consider when dealing with conflict with one another is can I overlook this as a minor offense? Does it break God's law? Is this God calling me to bear with one another in love mentioned six times in the New Testament? But still, Jesus continues in verse 15. He says, if your brother has sinned against you, and if you'd look carefully, At the end of that sentence, in your Bible or on the screen, there's a comma. And a comma dictates a pause. Now, recognize that commas do not exist in the original language, but I want us to consider this pause for a second. In fact, I want to preach about a comma for a moment. Because this is a comma we need to strongly take into consideration. For when Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you, comma, he's encouraging you to pause. And take into consideration that first principle of overlooking minor offenses. And then take into consideration a second principle in dealing with conflict. And that's to self-reflect. Now I have no idea what Matthew was going in when he decided to write all the passages about conflict in the New Testament. But let's look at Matthew 7. Because Matthew dealt with a lot of conflict, apparently. In Matthew 7, 3-5, through this is what Matthew writes, quoting Jesus. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What the Bible would call us to here is to self-reflect and to consider our own sin first. 
That's, we're going to pause and we're going to consider, is this a major offense? Is this a minor offense? And then we want to check our heart. We want to prayerfully check our heart and check our lifestyles. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus' words point towards a clarity in verse 5 that you will have in order to point out the speck in your brother's eye. And don't miss that. That there's a log in your eye and a speck in his that we can be really good at majoring in other people's offenses and really good at minoring in ours. As a people, we are great at writing off our mistakes and making a colossal deal of everyone else's. And that's part of Jesus' point here. That we would consider our own sin and that our sin and our mistakes can even bring clarity to see the redemption in our lives played out can bring clarity to the other person and to the speck in their eye when you have first dealt with your own sin. In fact, Jesus puts a priority on this, you should know, that we would deal with one another. In Matthew 5, Matthew still on his kick on relationships, Jesus teaches this, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there's only one context to understand that, isn't it? If you were coming before a holy God to meet with him, this is the Bible, if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now this isn't your brother sinning against you. Now this is you coming to God, and you know somebody has something against you. Which is to say that you know you've sinned against somebody. You know that you have wronged them in some way. Rather than putting it in your pocket. Rather than forgetting it happened. Rather than doing nothing at all and hoping they don't notice. Verse 24 says, and this is God talking. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus has to say here is, if your brother has something against you, if you've sinned against him and you've not dealt with it, go to him first, deal with your earthly relationship, and then come deal with me. This is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and I hope you're seeing the priority that Jesus places on clean relationships here. Before you worship me, take care of your sin with other people. Before you take care of sin with other people, check your own sin. That we might self-reflect and and ask, where have I been guilty before I approach you? And we have two principles so far that we want to lean into. First, that we would overlook a minor offense. And second that we would prayerfully self-reflect, asking where we have been guilty, asking where we have sinned, asking where our sin has led to this situation and this circumstance. And all of that, and we're still in verse 15, for if you have overlooked, and if you have self-reflected, then Jesus says in verse 15, go, And tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go to the person 
that sinned against you and tell them the fault. Now again, this is about you. This whole verse is about how you're going to handle it. And it's presuming that you've overlooked. It's presuming you've self-reflected. And now I want to put the bigger one on you. Because what the Bible is now suggesting is not that you've gone and told your whole small group. Or that you've even called your mother. Or your accountability partner. Or the seven people you like to check with before you do things. The Bible says go and tell him his fault. That you should go and seek out the person who has sinned against you. See, one of the challenges that happens here in our ability to snowball things and make them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger is sometimes we want to go to other people and say, you would never believe what this person did to me because we're trying to make it bigger. We're trying to make it more offensive and we're working ourselves up and getting even more offended than we ought to be. When the reality is, is if you went to that person, they may say, well, I didn't mean it at all. I am so sorry that that happened. And yet we can blow things up and make them huge. We can make a bigger deal than it needs to be. And friends, we often use this as an excuse to gossip. That we can tell people, oh, but they need to know. Oh, they need to be aware of what happened to me. We start asserting ourselves and making a big deal of us. And when we do... We make Jesus really small. We make him not enough for us. Friends, we need to honor the fact that this person, whoever they are, whether they believe in Jesus Christ or not, that they're made in the image of God. And we need to give them the dignity of being spoken to. We need to give them the dignity of of being called out so that they will know it, so that they will hear it, and so that they have a chance to respond to the case of their sin against you. It is amazing to me how often when I've sat down with two people in a conflict, when we sit down and we start working through a major conflict, that more often than not, when they start working towards understanding one another, That it's not this versus that. It's that they actually agree with one another. They're just looking at it from a different perspective. That they're both headed the same direction. They're just going different ways to get there. And if they just stopped and talked about it, we wouldn't be here. Friends, go and tell the person their fault between you and him alone. Honor them. By going to them. This is what Jesus commands. And and watch this. We've had three principles so far that have been laid out for us. And they're all about you. Because you have to deal with the sin first, do you not? You have to deal with you before you can ever deal with somebody else. Don't make the mistake of dealing with them first. Because it will be far more than it needs to be. You deal with you. Overlook offenses. Prayerfully self-reflect. And then go to them. This is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18. And then he adds on 
And if he listens to you, you will have gained your brother. Proverbs 9, 8 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Walking through conflict will bring you into deeper relationships. This is the one thing that I really want married couples to kind of get. This is the one thing that I really want Christians to kind of get. That if we would actually be actively involved in some of our conflicts and we'd lean into them a little bit, we would grow up and the church would actually have the impact and the effect it's supposed to have on us. And that'd be if we started dealing with our sin and when the times when we're sinned against, we would grow up because we'd gain the boldness to sit down with somebody and say, I'm so sorry. And here's your example. I am so sorry. But something happened between us and I need to come to you and talk to you about it. I have prayed over this moment several times and I've sought the Lord on it and I know I'm not innocent. But this happened and I was really hurt by it and I just wanted to come to you first and talk to you about it. Now can you imagine how that would be received? Now I'll be honest, I'd probably open the door probably nine of you are going to knock on my door this week. And each and every time it happens, I'm going to be like, and my defensive wheels are going to kick in high gear. But when somebody comes to you gently and softly, it starts to unravel your defensive responses so that we can hear those people. See, there's this part of conflict where we're able to walk through it. I now can look at you and think, wow, we survived that. Our relationship is strong. This is great, and we walk into a new normal. I remember on my honeymoon with Pam, I don't lovingly refer to my honeymoon with my wife very often, here comes one. Pam and I got into a fight once on our honeymoon, and I laughed once. And and it's not good to laugh in the middle of a conflict, but this is why I laughed. We're fighting about something, I don't even remember what it was, but I laughed and I said, hey, guess what? We're stuck together. It doesn't even matter. We're cemented here. We're going to work it out. And Christians, can I tell you that that should be true of all of us? That in Jesus Christ, in the bond that we have in Christ, in the reality that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us have sinned. And Jesus himself redeemed us. It wasn't our work. It wasn't our good deeds. It wasn't anything we could do, say, or think. It was Jesus that saved us. And put us together in this room now, knowing we would sin against one another. And so, friends, when it happens, can we just glory and say, we get to work this out. Because we're together. God put us here. And when we work it out, and when we work out that conflict, and when we work out those challenges and those struggles, do you know what the world sees from us? The picture given in John 17 that they will know you are my disciples by how you loved one another. And that kind of love doesn't overlook offenses. It leans into them to find the truth. If we have walked into this, Matthew 18, looking at relational hygiene, this practice 
of the things that we should do regularly to maintain our relationships with one another. Honestly, we should shower regularly and brush our teeth. That will help our relationships. But we should also confess sin to one another, first and foremost, ours. And we should be willing to go and trust people when they've sinned against us that we can approach them and that we can walk through it. This week we have put three principles before you in Matthew 18. Next week we're going to walk through the rest of it. But friends, it is all a waste. It is all a waste if you don't first look at you. That's the mistake everyone makes when they look at Matthew 18 as they jump immediately to the next verses. I should tell somebody. I should tell a lot of people. And they miss what Jesus had to teach here. Overlook an offense. Prayerfully self-reflect. Though I'll tell you my journal, I call this trigger removal. And go to the person I want to close with this. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts. We like that part, don't we? But watch this. As we also have forgiven our debtors, If you lean into how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he asks you in present tense that we would ask God to forgive us our debts as we have, past tense, forgiven those who've sinned against us. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them in such a way that took into account you have clearly made amends with other people first. And now you're coming to me to ask forgiveness for yours. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. Friends, we will continue to be a better and more clear reflection of Jesus Christ to this world when we handle conflict well and we don't avoid it. Praying for all of us for the number of random knocks we might get on our doors or phone calls. You preach this and you ask for it a little bit. If I've offended you in any way, I, I literally mean it. Here's your week. Oh, you can have next week and the week after that. I mean, we're in relationships. I'll sin against you again. But let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word, your Bible. Father, as you have given us your very words to live on, Father, we look to it to build our life upon. And Father, your scripture is so clear about the gospel that none of us are good enough, that you died for all of us to take away our sins. And yet, Father, one of the greatest expressions of the gospel that we can live out is forgiving one another. Father, I pray that as you would build us as a church, as you and your your wisdom, Father, as you've put us together, each person in this room, Father, is here because you brought them here. Father, may we be a people that lives out the gospel amongst one another. May we be a people that maintains relational hygiene. That if there are people we need to go to and ask for forgiveness, that we would do it. And if there are people, Father, that we need to go to and and prayerfully and humbly say, you've offended me. I pray that we would do it. Father, not for our own glorification or edification, 
but that much would be made of the name of your son Jesus. That we would be a real and authentic community living with one another in such a way that reflects the glory of your son Jesus. Thank you so much that this book tells us not only how to rightly relate to you through Jesus, but how to relate to one another through Jesus. May we reflect Him in all of our relationships. Amen.